Good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. Good to be back with you. Um, I'm Stacy Tyson. I think everybody knows me here. Um, good to be back. Glad to be back. Um, not necessarily glad to be back talking about hell, but uh, glad to help Seth out a little bit. <laughs> um, tonight, if you'll open up to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to tell you all, I, I really needed a handout for you all tonight. We're going to be going over some uh, lies about hell, uh, false teaching about hell that's current in our culture, has been part of our tradition, and so uh, I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at y'all, not, not a whole lot, but I, I really needed to give y'all a handout, but I didn't finish putting this together until about an hour ago, so uh, didn't have time to pull it all together. But I thought uh, Revelation 20 would be a good place for us to start. Revelation 20, um, I'm sure most of you have studied the book of Revelation before. And when you come to Revelation 20, uh, things are really starting to wind down, so to speak. Revelation 20 is also uh, probably uh, one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. And it, it's controversial for one little number, 1,000 years. What does that mean? I'm not going to get into all that tonight. Um, I'm going to get to the stuff that's fairly clear in it. And uh, so if you look in Revelation 20 with me, uh, Revelation 20, look in verse 11. And what we have, where we're picking up is um, after the devil and the false prophet and the beast. If you, if you know Revelation, uh, there will be a, a figure at the end of this present age who will arise, who is referred to as the beast in Revelation. John refers to him as the Antichrist. Uh, Paul calls him the uh, son of perdition. Jesus refers to him as the abomination that causes desolation. He's got a lot of different titles, but he is this last world leader who will lead uh, the world in a rebellion against the Lord God. And uh, he has another um, right-hand man called the, the false prophet, they lead this final rebellion against uh, God and against Christ. And ultimately, they're defeated. Uh, and the beast, the false prophet, and the devil is cast into the lake of fire that burns with uh, fire and sulfur. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what you see in Revelation 20, verse 10. Then verse 11, Revelation twenty eleven, 11, uh, we pick up with this. It says, Then I saw a great white throne... And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if you'll, if you'll jump down with me, uh, Revelation 21 starts with the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, really glorious image. Revelation 21.1, Then uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then uh, in the next couple of verses, you see uh, the Lord taking up his dwelling place among his people. He wipes uh, every tear from their eyes, makes a statement, death is no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain. All these former things have passed away. And then he makes the statement, I'm making all things new. Uh, So this great uh, fulfillment Uh, The coming of the kingdom in its full power and glory is what you see here in Revelation 21 and 22. Then if you look down in verse 7, he says, Then the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's pretty powerful. Verse 9, he begins this description of the new Jerusalem that's coming down. Uh, This great city that becomes the the center of the new creation, so to speak. Uh, the, the headquarters of the, the new creation, if I could say it that way. Uh, he, he describes that all the way down through uh, the rest of chapter 21. 22 continues on with that description. Uh, and then finally, if you'll turn to Revelation 22.6 with me, Revelation 22.6, uh, we get the close to this whole book, the whole book of Revelation. <clears throat> uh, an angel has been guiding John through some of these visions. And so um, here you have everything being wrapped up in terms of what John has been writing down and recording. So verse 6, it says, Now he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then Jesus speaks in verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, John begins to worship him at that point and so forth. Uh, Verse 10, he's told not to seal up the words of this book that he's just received. And then if you look in verse 12, uh, I'll close out this reading with this. In verse 12, again, Jesus speaks. He says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. But outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And then you have this call from the spirit and the bride. Come, um, a warning to heed the prophecies of this book. Uh, I start here because uh, in in these last couple of chapters of Revelation, which are so glorious in in their detail of the kingdom to come and the city to come, and salvation being completed, you have this very stark counterpoint that is right in your face that not everybody's going to make it into that kingdom. 
there are specific people, specific types of people that are mentioned, and y'all just heard it, that are not going to be in that city. They're not going to be in that kingdom. They're going to be in the lake of fire. And let me just say, when you think about the reality of that, when you think about uh, the reality of an existence, and for me, this is the real, this is the real barb in it, an existence without hope. Because once you go into the lake of fire, there is no coming back as far as I can tell from Scripture. Once you are consigned there, that is it. No second chances. No coming out. Hope dies at that point. I cannot get my mind around it. I don't know about you. To me, that is one of the most terrifying, sobering realities that the Scriptures presents to us as far as everything that we see here. And I think that is why... Uh, there are there are many teachings that have come into the church over the years and have resurfaced in later years because this this idea of an unrelenting eternal punishment is just too much to get our minds around and let me just say this that 's the point of it right that 's why Jesus warns us about it so sternly in the gospels. It should be terrifying. As my daddy used to say to me all the time, son, you need some things that will scare the hell out of you. That's what hell is meant to do. It is meant to terrify us. right? And, and the Bible never steps back at presenting the utter hopeless reality of that lake of fire. And, and let me just say this. One of the things that you see in the book of Revelation in these passages that we've just read is that the unrighteous that have already died, they are in the place of the dead. They're in hell. And from what Jesus teaches, apparently there's torment going on, uh, simply being separated uh, from the care of God in that place in, in some sense or another. But even death and hell, right, the holding pens of the unrighteous dead, even those places are going to be plucked up in the end and cast into the lake of fire. So as bad it is, as it is for the unrighteous now, it's not as bad as it's going to be. Now, that's, to me, that's another. How do you get your mind around that idea? And, and as human beings, we want to, I think we want to pull back from that. It seems so stern. I mean, all these questions that, that come out of this. How, if God truly is love, how could he send anybody to a place like that? How could he place anybody uh, in, a, in a place where, where hope exists no longer? Whereas where salvation is, it's not going to happen. How can he do that if he is who he claims to be? And so these are some of the things that we're going to deal with in part tonight. And let me just say, as, as I get into them, uh, in the background, there's always a, a battle, constant struggle of at least three voices that are always present when we get into these theological issues. And, and the first voice is the voice of revelation. That is the voice of the Lord God himself who speaks to us in and through our Lord Jesus Christ by the power and presence of His Holy Spirit. Revelation. We have it recorded for us, we believe, in the Scriptures. It's been written down for us. The things that God wants us to know in an infallible way. In a way that we can look at and say, this is exactly what He's communicated to us. Uh, this is what He wants us to know. And, and for me... Revelation is the thing that gets to, as I say, put the period at the end of the sentence. Revelation gets to have the final word on all matters related to life and godliness. But as you know, there's another voice that's often challenging it. Uh, Sometimes it supports Revelation, but sometimes it challenges it. And that's the voice of culture. 
a culture is simply the voice of collected wisdom at a given point in a given time. And so culture is always changing, right? The culture that exists in America right now in 2018, very different from the culture that existed in, say, Northern Europe in the Middle Ages. Very, very different thing. And so that culture is producing ideas and beliefs. And in our time, I would argue that many of the ideas that the voice of culture is producing is in direct challenge to the voice of revelation. It's, it's, it's just as the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden, did God really say, did he really say that? And, the, and the, even in asking the question, the implication is he didn't really say that, or you've read it wrong, or, or something like that. So that, that voice of culture is always calling out. It's always pushing against revelation in some way or another. When, when, when the voice of culture becomes solidified, it becomes the voice of tradition. Right? It becomes the voice of those who have come before us that have tried to figure these things out, and they're giving us the answers to these questions. Uh, in fact, the, the way, a lot, largely, a lot of the ways we interpret Scripture comes to us through tradition, comes to us through things that are handed down through us. And, and many of us spend most of our adult lives really working through the tradition that's been given to us to figure out what's good in that tradition and what's not so good. I, I always tell this story. I, I can't resist. When This is a story that, it, I mean, it may be apocryphal. It's in my wife's family. Uh, but it's a good story nevertheless. Um, even stories that aren't true still can teach truth, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, but I, I think this is true because I heard Jill's grandmother tell it. Jill's grandmother grew up, and every Sunday that, that they would cook a ham. And when she would cook the ham, she would always cut off one end of the ham and put it in the oven and, and cook it. Uh, and so she wondered, why do we always cut off that end of the ham and put it in the oven and cook it? So she goes to her mother and says, Mother, why, do, why did you teach me to cut the end off of the ham and put it in the oven and then cook it? She said, you know, I've never thought about it. Let me ask my mama. So she goes and asks her mother, which is Jill's grandmother's grandmother. Are you following me? Uh, listen, why do we cut the end off of the ham and cook it that way? And her mother said, well, it was simple. We never had a pan big enough for a ham. Right? You follow me? So, so that tradition that had been passed down, it's, kind of, it's utterly meaningless to the ones that come after it because now they've got a, bit, a pan big enough to put the ham in. Some things in tradition are very good because uh, we stand in the tradition of faith. You and I are here because of the sacrifices of men and women that have come before us that have had their eyes fixed on Jesus and have lived in such a way that has kept the tradition of our faith alive. Amen? Right. Uh, I, you know, having gone to seminary, I, I think about all of the toil and effort that has gone simply into translating the scriptures out of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek so that we can read it in our mother tongue in whatever flavor we want to read it in. Right. And, and why do they spend all that time doing it? I had a prophet seminary that literally wound up in the nuthouse because he was translating the word of God and realized what an incredible responsibility it is to get that right, and drove himself crazy over it. He, he, he eventually recovered from that. But nevertheless, it's a big deal. And so tradition can be a powerful voice, but just because it's tradition doesn't mean it's the right voice. And so tonight, in each of these things we're going to look at, we're going to touch on one or two of those things as we go through. And again, as I said, in my view, uh, I think we have to let Scripture, for me, I think Scripture has to be that final voice. 
Scripture gets to speak in such a way that it determines what is true in culture and what is true in tradition. And it also speaks in such a way that helps us understand that so that we can uh, weed the truth out from the lies. And so tonight, I'm going to be fairly pointed on some of these things, and it's simply because I think that's what Scripture says. And so uh, we, we can work our way through. Number one, one of, the, one of the predominant views is that there is no actual hell. One of the greatest challenges to the biblical concept of hell is that there is not any sort of actual hell. And, and some people say, uh, even if they don't deny the reality of an actual hell, they will say that uh, the language of hell in the scripture is simply metaphorical and it's not pointing to anything in reality. Uh, you can do a very short study on metaphors and linguistics and you'll very quickly come to the realization that all language is metaphor. All language is metaphor, right? We're using a symbolic language to talk about realities. When I say the word tree, there's nothing in that word, right, that, that represents the tree as it is. It's simply the, the symbol that we use to refer to that reality in the real world. So, so all language is metaphorical. That doesn't get us anywhere. But the other really interesting thing is, is that when we think about things being metaphorical as a figure of speech, you know, some people have said when Jesus talks about the fires of hell, he's talking about a metaphorical reality. There's not literal fire in hell. But here's the catch in that. When we use metaphors like that, generally speaking, and to a large degree, the metaphor pales in comparison to the reality of the thing that we're referring to. When I say God is a rock, right, in the Psalms, God is my rock and my refuge, right? I'm saying something about God's strength and something about his permanence. But let me ask you this. Is the strength and permanence of God greater than a rock? Absolutely. Let me just suggest to you this. If Jesus is using a metaphor when he refers to the fires of hell, that probably points to the fact that what he's trying to describe to us is something far worse than we can ever imagine. And the closest thing that he has to describe it is fire. Do you understand what I'm saying? So just by saying this is some kind of metaphor or figure of speech, it doesn't get us away from the reality that Jesus is talking about some reality. I mean, listen to this. And and by the way, Jesus believed that hell was real. <laughs> For me, that, that seals the deal. Jesus says, listen, I can tell you about this place. And by the way, you do know he can tell us about it because he's the place that made it. He's the one who made it. He tells us very specifically, it's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I tie that together with everything that's been created, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. Everything that exists has been created by, through, and for Jesus. So probably Jesus himself is the agent of the creation of this place that's going to be fit for the devil and his angels. And Jesus, as he talks about hell, y'all, y'all have heard these passages. Seth has touched on several of them. Uh, I've touched on several of them. Um, just, a, just a couple. Well, let me just give you one. This is the one that sticks out to me, Matthew five twenty nine. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus thinks that hell is such a terrible reality, you will cut anything away from you that will keep you from going there. Right? Terrible reality. So, so from the point of view of the scriptures, I don't think you can deny 
that this is a doctrine that is taught clearly. Every writer of the New Testament, in some way or another, touches on a reality in eternity that is outside of the presence of God. Fire is often mentioned. Darkness is often mentioned. It is a place of torment that you would do anything possible to get out of there if it were possible. Every writer of the New Testament touches on that in some way or another. And so simply to deny it uh, really puts us at odds with Scripture as a whole. And I just I, I don't think we can do that. Now, again, if you, if you believe that the Scripture is not the Word of God, that it's not a revelation from the Lord God, then it's easy to dismiss those things. And there are a lot of people in our culture that, that believe the Scriptures, the Bible, is nothing more than a collection of myths uh, engaged in symbols. A, a really great, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble saying this, a really great example of this in modern culture is a guy named Jordan Peterson, who has really come on the scene uh, in culture uh, talking about the spread of postmodern Marxist ideas in the universities and so forth. You may run into him. He takes a Jungian view of the scripture uh, based on the teaching of Carl Jung, where the scripture is just symbols that point us to some mythic realities. It's not really the word of God as we think of it as the word of God. But it's simply symbolic mythology, if you can say it that way. So it's very easy to reinterpret everything to be whatever you want it to be if it's not the Word of God, uh, literally and powerfully. So there again, if you're in that camp, then it really doesn't matter. I believe the Scriptures are the Word of God, and it teaches us very plainly about hell. Second major issue that comes up, this is an issue called universalism, uh, that a loving God would not send anyone to hell forever, and that's the real key I'm going to touch on this forever idea, both in this point and in the next one, when we talk about um, some type of um, purgatorial view of hell. Uh, but this is the basic idea that, that a loving God would not send anyone to hell uh, forever. And, and Seth has really touched on this uh, in a very specific way uh, as he's dealt with this issue that hell is just not uh, a place where people wind up there because of their own choices Although that does factor in, hell is a place that God actively sends people who are in rebellion against him as a punishment. Uh, Jesus touches on this. Jesus teaches on this. Matthew 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 10, 28. Again, a very powerful statement. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You hear that? Now, that seems to imply that the Lord God himself is the one who sends people to hell to destroy both their soul and their body. Right? So, biblically, this, this view doesn't hold water in the sense of it's just God passively letting people wind up there. All throughout Scripture, we see God evaluating people and sending them there because it's the just and the right place for them to be. It's what we just read in Revelation Chapter 20. In fact, uh, if, if you still have your uh, Bible open there in Revelation 20, there's something really fascinating uh, to me that happens. It's implied in what John records for us there. Uh, in verse 12, Revelation 20, verse 12, uh, again, like, like so many of the passages in Revelation, this is a very short summary 
uh, passage. It gives us some of the main details, but it doesn't necessarily answer all the questions that we would like for it to answer. Uh, but, it, but it does tell us what's important. So if you look in verse 12, he, he sees the, this uh, mass of people that are standing before this great white throne. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Now see that, see that books, plural. And then he says this, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You see that? So you have all these books that are brought out. Uh, one commentator that I read, and I think there may be some weight to this, he thinks those books are simply the records of these people's lives. Everything they've done, right? All throughout their life. And the idea is that the Lord God takes this book, right? Stacy's book. Stacy, this is the book of your life. Let's open that thing up and look in it. Oh, boy, howdy, right? Uh, one of the great things that happens to us is we forget Right. We forget so much. It's one of the great gifts that the Lord God has given to us. Right. To be able to forget. Man, I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff I like to forget. Right. These books and the Lord God, he forgets nothing except for his people. For his people, the Lord chooses to forget their sinfulness, to wipe it away, wash it away. So that not only does he forget it, he remembers it no more. Right. It's, It's not just an absence of his memory. He actively chooses, I'm not going to remember this. That's a powerful idea. The Lord who is perfect in knowledge, who really can't forget anything, his choice for us is, I choose not to remember your sins. Right? Not so for these people. The books are open. The Lord goes through their lives. Let's see if there, and I think the idea is, let's see if there's anything in here that warrants your entry into the kingdom. And let me tell you what, those books come up short. But in the end, the exclamation mark on it if their name is not found written in the book of life then they are excluded from the kingdom and they are cast into the lake of fire right that burns with the fire and the sulfur so here the lord the lord is definitely as the judge he is the agent that is sending these people into the lake of fire uh so again in scripture we we constantly see the lord god as judge of the living and the dead and he is the one who ultimately consigns people uh, to this place of judgment. So you can't back away from that in Scripture. And let me just say, I think our our culture has a really hard time with this, particularly asking the question of why a loving God would send anybody to hell. Because in, in our culture, we have so redefined love to mean something that is not in the Bible anywhere. And it's this idea that if I love somebody... I would never do anything whatsoever to make them uncomfortable. That's how bad it's gotten. If if, if I love somebody, I'm not going to do anything to make them uncomfortable. That doesn't work anywhere in the real world, right? Uh, And by the way, that's not love, right? If I love my daughters, that implies I have to make them uncomfortable to turn them into mature human beings, so they didn't wind up in hell, right? As a father, I have to, we have to guide ourselves along. My wife has to do this to me. My wife has to make me uncomfortable to help me grow up day by day, right? I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. I don't know what I need to know. So, so this whole idea of love is so warped and twisted 
uh, in our culture. And I could spend endless time talking about that. But God's idea of love is that he, he treasures his people so much that he will not allow them to continue down paths that will bring them into ruin. And so he, he disciplines us for our good. He, he's, he, he treats us as sons and daughters, as a great father who knows exactly what we need when we need it to turn us into the people that we need to be. So this, this twisted view of God's love, it, it gets us into trouble right off the bat because God realizes there are some people, as I talked about earlier, that, that this hell, this lake of fire, is going to be the only place fit for them. It's the only place where they will... Find a place in eternity. Because even if he allowed them into the kingdom, they wouldn't be fit there because they love unrighteousness and wickedness. And they're enemies to all that's good and beautiful and true. So even if you put them in the kingdom, it wouldn't be fit for them. So God is sending them to this place that is a place of punishment, but it's a place fit for them. One, um, one uh, uh, a guy named Gregory MacDonald, he wrote a book called The Evangelical, Evangelical Universalist. And he is, he's, he's making this argument for universalism that is ultimately everybody's going to be saved in some way or another, that hell is not forever. Um, he also may be taking an, an annihilistic uh, view that people are just burnt up and they don't live forever in hell. I'll talk about that in just a second. But in, in that book, he makes a really interesting uh, confession. Let me just read it to you. Uh, Now, listen very closely to this. He says, clearly, my interpretation is undermined by the text. I am not so much exegeting the text as trying to draw out the logic of New Testament theology as I understand it and its implications for those texts. In the process, I may be offering ways of reading the text that go beyond what their authors had in mind. Let me summarize what he's saying. My view would be great if it weren't for the Bible, <laughs> messing it up. Because really, I, I, when you take the text at face value, they're not coming to the conclusion that I'm coming to. What I'm trying to do is create a trajectory that comes out of the Bible. And if, 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 we, if, if God had just given them a couple of more years, this is the idea. This, this is really big in theology right now. If Paul could have had 30 more years, if Paul could have lived into the 20th century, he would have come to the same conclusions that we have culturally about many of these things. And he would have written totally differently if he'd have just had time to develop his ideas. And think about the danger in that. That is an inherently dangerous idea because that means that Paul's thoughts weren't fully developed. And if Paul's thoughts weren't fully developed, then the Holy Spirit's thoughts weren't fully developed when he gave us that. Very dangerous thing. And, and that's where this comes down to here. Universalist idea. Bible doesn't support that. There's a lake of fire. People wind up there. Um, don't know how you get around that. Third, um, third false teaching that's really popular in our culture. And, and I've, just, I've summarized this as the purgatorial view of hell. It's kind of a resurgence of purgatory. If, if you grew up uh, Catholic or even uh, Anglican, uh, you will know that purgatory is held, is a doctrine that's held in those traditions. And it's this idea that uh, some people, uh, some of the saints, well, not the saints, some, of, some believers, when they die, they go to a place called purgatory, and there they get to burn off the sins, the, 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 their sinfulness is purged over a period of thousands, millions of years 
until they are purified, sanctified to make it on into the kingdom. Now, if you're sainted, you get to pass through purgatory and go straight into the kingdom. Da, 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 da. Um, when this doctrine was developed, they also had a, a doctrine called refrigerum. I don't know if you have heard that. And that was the doctrine that there was an iceberg uh, right outside of purgatory, or right outside of hell, where people, uh, if, if you loved your loved ones that you were pretty sure were in hell, burning in the fires of hell, and they're not ever going to get out, uh, you could pay a penance, you could pay some money, and buy them one day on the iceberg refrigerum to give them some release from the heat. That one kind of fell out of vogue pretty quick, right? That one's hard to support. Purgatory, very similar thing. A traditional teaching, nowhere supported in Scripture. But, but, it, is, but, but it is a view that uh, has been emended by Rob Bell. I mentioned Rob Bell uh, a couple of weeks ago in his book, uh, Love Wins, where he has taken this somewhat universalist purgatorial view. Uh, and in that, uh, uh, Rob says this, uh, talking about his perspective. He says, at the heart of this perspective, the perspective that he's developing in this book, which is a universalist, nobody's going to be in hell forever, so forth and so on. At the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. So his idea is, is that people who wind up in hell uh, now, uh, hell is, is going to be a, a, a place of remedial action on God. It's, again, purgatory, where their sinfulness is burned away so that they eventually make it into the kingdom so that God's love wins at the end of the day and so forth. And it, Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. Let me just say, I'm running short on time. Go read the parable that Luke tell, uh, Jesus tells in Luke chapter 13, 22 through 28. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 28. Uh, there Jesus tells a parable, and he, uh, he's, he's out teaching. And some of his disciples ask, Lord, uh, will those who are saved be few? And he says, well, let me tell you this, uh, let me tell you this, strive to enter in through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you, I don't know where you've come from. And you will say, listen, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, listen, I don't know where you've come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Jesus doesn't teach in any of these parables any type of remedial action in the place of the unrighteous dead. And by the way, the Catholic teaching on purgatory didn't allow for that either. Purgatory was not a way for people to get out of hell. It was a way for saints to be purged in the afterlife. So if you were consigned to hell, you were not going to get into heaven. Purgatory was only a place for people who were kind of headed that way. Right? So e- even that teaching, traditional, uh, as unbiblical as it is, I believe, uh, even it didn't make a place that hell is a place of remedy to get people out of it. Jesus neither. The rich man in Lazarus, uh, Seth taught on that. The rich man who is in the fires, right? he has no expectation that he is getting out of that place. He cannot even get out to go and tell his brothers, listen, you need to do whatever you do so you don't wind up here, right? It's an irreversible reality. 
And I think the scriptures are fairly clear on that, as horrific as it is, as terrifying as it is. And that leads me to the fourth thing here, this, this challenging that hell uh, is not forever. This is the idea of annihilationism, uh, that, that people will not be in hell forever. They'll be burnt up, uh, destroyed, uh, and it won't last forever and ever. Let me just say that uh, I touched on this last week as I taught on Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. Uh, you can go back and listen to that. I, I touch on that for just a little bit. Um, let me just quote this one passage. Uh, John five twenty eight through 29. This is Jesus uh, talking about the resurrection to come. And uh, what Jesus says here, I think, is linked to Daniel 12, where very similar uh, uh, words are used, very similar image uh, is used. Uh, John five twenty eight through 29, Jesus says, Listen, uh, do not be amazed at what I've said, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. And, and the word that's used there in Greek is the idea of a judgment leading to condemnation, a resurrection leading to condemnation. For me, this is, a, this is a harsh reality, and we see it here in Revelation 20 that we read tonight. And let me just state it this way. Why, right? Why, if, if people are simply going to be annihilated, wiped off the books, why does the Lord resurrect them from the dead and put them in resurrected bodies? Everybody's going to be resurrected. Y'all realize that. Everybody. The wicked dead, the righteous dead, they're going to be resurrected from the dead. Why would the Lord resurrect them and put them in a body fit for eternity, right? If there wasn't some expectation that that's where they're going to dwell in that eternity. And this is why Jesus warns us against, warns us about the terror of the fires of this hell and this burning. That's why Revelation warns us against it as well. And so, so for me, there, there's some logic there in asking the question about, well, how does the resurrection fit into that? And let me just say, go back and listen to all these passages, read all these passages that we've looked at. And almost every one of them, you you get this very powerful sense that this is a forever thing. Uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians says that they are separated from his presence forever. And so a lot going on there. Let me also say as I close out that uh, Francis Chan has written a book called Erasing Hell. Some of you may have heard of that. And he goes through many of these arguments in that book about how hell has been totally redefined in our culture, uh, in, in popular thought. And I would really highly recommend, he does a fantastic job of dealing with some of these false teachings, but also tying them into the gospel, uh, tying them into the things that we've also been focusing on, that as people of faith, we're not going to wind up in hell because of what Jesus has done for us. Um, so I would really recommend that book. And let me, just, let me just close with this. Uh, we're just a little bit over time. I appreciate y'all's patience. But I really want to read this to you because for me, when we think about this eternal reality of hell, one of the things that I find that many of these false teachers always factor out is Jesus himself. And that is, if hell is remedial, if, if, if there is something that can be done after we die to put us in the right place with God... Why did Jesus have to come and die and do the things that he did and tell us you need to get right with me in this life right now? Because this is the only one you're going to get. This is the only chance you're going to get. 
Why does that not factor in? And, and let me say this to the eternal horror and reality. The writer of Hebrews touches on this, and I just want to read this passage to you. This is in Hebrews 10, uh, 26 through 31, and I'll close out with this. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 26. He says, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, in, the, in Hebrews, I, I can very clearly make the argument that when he talks about sin, he's not talking about the particulars of sin, lying and cheating and cussing and swearing. And all. He is talking about the primary sin of not taking God at his word, rejecting God's truth in rebellion and not being obedient and faithful to what God has communicated to us. That is very clear throughout this letter. So that's what he means by deliberately sin. That is, if we keep on acting unfaithfully uh, or without faith after receiving the knowledge of the truth, listen to this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That is, if you reject what God has told you about what he has done for you in Christ, what else is there? There is nothing else. That's it. And then listen to this. There is only the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now listen, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God? Remember that these wicked, wicked people who are going into the lake of fire are people who will look at Jesus in his face, spit in his face, and say, no matter what you do to me, I will not worship you, ever. I will never bow the knee willingly to you. You can send me where you will, but I will not praise your name. I will not give you glory. I will not submit to you willingly. Never. Those are the people who wind up there. Those are the people who are going to be sent to this lake of fire. People who will never willingly bow to Jesus. Instead, what do they do? They trample him underfoot. Right? Listen to what he goes on to say. They regard as profane the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified. These are people who profane the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus ain't good enough for me. Essentially what it comes down to. And... They've insulted the spirit of grace. 1030. For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. For it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just remember this. The Lord will take just vengeance against these people. Send them to this lake of fire that burns forever. If for nothing else, Because they have not respected his son, Jesus, who gave up his place in eternity, shed his blood for us, took on our suffering, took on our pain, took on our illness, took on the very reality of hell for us. That's what the cross was about. And yet these people shake the fist at him. I will never bow. I will never relent. Let me just suggest something to you. Maybe the lake of fire is exactly where those people need to be. And God makes no apology for it, and neither should we. Neither should we. Because the best thing we can do 
is warn people that are headed there now about this reality so that perchance through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe God may touch them with his grace, change their hearts, change their minds, and turn them before it's too late. Because at some point, the door is going to close, the lock is going to be shut, and they will not be able to get in. Those are the people that we have on our hearts and minds that we pray for. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. It contains many things which are difficult to understand, difficult things to get our minds around, things that we don't ex- like to accept emotionally. Uh, it gives us, gives us great uh, discord in our hearts and minds. But ultimately, Father, I think for those of us who know you in this room, uh, we trust you. We trust that you really are as good as you claim to be, but you are also just and you are holy. And there is not going to be one person in eternity that does not wind up exactly where he or she needs to be by your grace, by your power, and by your mercy. And we thank you that you set us apart, called us to yourself as your people so that we can now rejoice and give praise and thanks to you, but also be a warning to those people who right now uh, are heading in that direction toward the lake of fire, toward unending torment uh, apart from your presence. And so, Father, we want to do the things that you've given us to do so that we can proclaim the name of Jesus, the only name by which people can be saved. And we pray all this in his awesome and beautiful name. Amen.